From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to CAFE Insider. I'm Preet Bharara. And I'm Joyce Vance. Hi, Joyce. Hi, Preet. How are you doing? I'm glad you came back. Well, you were pretty good the first (laughs) go-round, and, you know, I enjoyed listening to it afterwards, so I figured I'd give it a second try. Episode two. Sounds like a Star Wars thing. Joyce Strikes Back. But it's really episode 121, isn't it? That is correct. Yeah. A couple of things before we get started on some of the significant news of the last week. How are your chickens? Chickens are good. The weather's beautiful and mama's serving up lots of cucumbers. Why cucumbers? Chickens really like cucumbers. Um, I'll send you video. It's something that you just have to see. Well, speaking of video, you did respond to the tweet I posted where I retweeted the dog. Was it a rooster? You know, it was a chicken. It was the most amazing thing with the, you would think the dog would be chasing the chicken, but that was a chicken 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 chasing a dog. What would have happened if the chicken caught the dog? It's like the the dog catching the car, right? I think pretty much. The chicken would have, um, you know, chickens, sad truth, don't have really huge brains. (laughs) So I think it was just sort of doing, you know, following the dog and would not have known what to do. So, so in a battle with the chicken loses. <laughs> the chicken is going to lose every time. We had one fly over our back fence this week, and then it just squawked in protest because it didn't know how to get back in. Uh, the opposite of little brains, speaking of big brains, our friends, Lisa Monaco and Vanita Gupta, were finally confirmed to their positions as the number two and number three people at the Justice Department. Lisa was confirmed. Finally. Finally. I mean, it's been a long, this is, you know, late April. They should have been on the job weeks and weeks ago. Lisa was confirmed 98 to 2. Only Ted Cruz and Rand Paul voting against. Our friend Vanita was not confirmed by the same margin. She only picked up one Republican vote, Lisa Murkowski. From Alaska, yeah, 51-49. But they're in the job, going to be doing good stuff. And we look forward to seeing what they do, right? I think it's tremendously exciting to see them in those positions. They are so abundantly qualified and so so appropriate for the moment that we're in because of their expertise. By the way, I should mention one more thing. That Stay Tuned has been nominated for a Webby. Do you know what Webbies are? Joyce, have you been doing this long enough? You know, I only know because I saw that you'd been nominated, which I think is really <laughs> exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. And it's for an episode that I did with another former DOJ colleague, Dan Goldman, for Best Individual Episode in the News and Politics category. So, so folks, when you're done listening to me and Joyce, go to vote.webbyawards.com and search for Stay Tuned to vote. Voting's important, right, Joyce? It's absolutely important, and never more so than, than for your Webby Award, Pre. <laughs> well, not as important as some things, and we'll be talking about that in future weeks as well. So it's hard to believe, given the pace of news, that it was one week ago today, shortly after you and I finished taping, a little bit of surprise, that the jury came back in the Derek Chauvin trial. I was very surprised that they came back that quickly, weren't you? We haven't had a chance to hear from you about this. I I did a little intro to the episode late in the day, and I know you had other things going on. So I haven't had a chance to ask you. So I was surprised also. We had not we had not prepared for the eventuality of a verdict that day. Why were you surprised? Why did you think it was not going to be so quick? 
I'm usually really an optimistic person, but that optimism breaks down when it comes to police excessive force prosecutions. And I thought the jury would have to look at all of the evidence and spend some time talking with each other, go over the law, go over the charges extensively, maybe argue with some members of the jury who didn't want to vote to convict before they got to a verdict. But the relative speed with which they came back indicates that they didn't really have a lot of trouble believing no, that the evidence was, yeah, warranted conviction. Did you expect some questions about the law to the judge from the jury? Usually you get that, right? It's so rare in a complicated case like this. And, and for people who aren't lawyers or who haven't served on a jury, it's important to know that juries often will go back to the court and ask questions about the jury instructions or about something a witness said. And the court will sort of caucus with the lawyers usually and and send sort of a response, usually maybe a partial answer to their question, but no questions with this jury. Yeah, so they came back pretty fast. Do you have an overall reaction to the verdict? I mean, my, my view is a little bit, as I, I think I said last week, as a prosecutor and as an observer, it seemed like a very strong case, and how could the jury do anything but convict but in these kinds of cases, we've been surprised before. And understandably, people in the black community are wary of these kinds of cases. Often they're not brought at all. But a little bit, in retrospect, it seems like the obvious verdict. Do you have a thought on that? I totally agree. The verdict was almost preordained by the evidence. You know, we, we discussed how... Um, you can call it lucky the prosecution was in terms of the evidence. But there was a part of me that was still holding my breath, prepared for a compromised verdict or even for a hung jury. So the fact that they came back quickly and came back with convictions, I think was uh, warranted based on this evidence. So all eyes now turn to sentencing, June 16th. You know, some people (laughs) were asking me, how come you can't get sentenced right away? There's a whole process. Lots of things have to happen. Blakely factors have to be assessed. That's the the case that basically says that any fact that would increase the guideline sentence for a defendant needs to be decided by the jury, or you have a right to have it be decided by the jury. In this case, Derek Chauvin waived that right, and the judge will determine those things, including whether or not those factors apply. And some of those factors uh, include the issue of, of the vulnerability of the victim, the fact that the crime occurred before children and some other considerations as well. The statutory maximums on the three counts are 40 years, 25 years, and 10 years. And that's the way the press always talks about it. They talk about it in terms of statutory maximums. The statutory maximum, as you and I know, is not the way to think about sentencing because those are rarely the sentences imposed. They're not mandatory minimums. They're statutory maximums. And from what I understand of the guidelines in Minnesota, that typically speaking in a, in a murder two, murder three situation, the guidelines range depending on the factors, but you know, averages about 12 and a half years. What do you think Chauvin is gonna get? So I think that assessment is, is correct because this is an unintentional murder two, it was depraved mind. The guidelines calculate out the same way that the murder three guidelines do. This judge has not seemed aggressive. You know, you'll recall, Preet, that he initially didn't want to let the prosecution bring the murder three charge, and they had to appeal that ruling. So I suspect he'll be a heartland of the guidelines kind of guy and stick 
pretty. That's a term of art you use, by the way. Heartland. Heartland. That's right. That's how lawyers talk about sentencing. Is it in the heartland or not? Judges don't get reversed when they stick in the heartland of the guidelines. And no, no judge likes to get reversed, but especially not here. But Preet, something I think that we should at least flag for our listeners is this. In Minnesota, like in many states, defendants, after they've been convicted, don't serve the entire length of their sentence. And by statute in Minnesota, Chauvin will serve roughly two-thirds of his time in custody and one-third of his time essentially in in, um, house arrest, in, in release. So the judge has the ability to change that, but that's typically the process that's set forth by law in Minnesota. And I I suspect many people will find that to be very disappointing when they hear it. The judge will be required to actually say it's sentencing, to put on the record how much of the sentence he imposes has to be served in custody. Yeah, so we don't have that in the federal system. There's no parole in the federal system. You get some time shaved off for, for good behavior while you're incarcerated, but it's nowhere near this amount. The interesting thing is, you know, I've been talking to one or two of our former colleagues in the Justice Department asking what they think the sentence will be. And in some ways, it's it's not the wisest exercise to try to second guess and predict what the sentence is going to be. It'll be what, what it will be, and we'll find out on June 16th. But she and I, and I wonder what you think, without a, you know a close look at the guidelines, just thinking about the circumstances and having been through this a million times in cases of our own or that we've overseen, kind of came to the same sense that, you know, a sentence of about 20 years or more seems like what it will be and would seem substantial enough in the circumstances. And I don't know how exactly are happened upon the 20 years. Does that sound right to you or not? You know, 20 years feels about right. Uh, but why it, is that? It's, it's interesting. It's before you, before you well, yeah. why is that? Because I have not taken a look at the grid. I have not gotten the briefing. I have not conducted the hearing. But for some reason, that number seems to have a heft to it. It could be a lot more. Maybe it should be a lot more. But why do you arrive at the 20 as well? You know, it it feels like it's a consistent sort of number with the way people are sentenced for murder. And in this case, this isn't a, uh, you know, I'll say and forgive me, a garden variety murder. This is instead someone in a position of official authority who takes a life that he's supposed to be protecting, does it in an extraordinarily callous fashion. So 20 years might be sort of the upper end of a sentencing range. I'm not entirely sure this judge gets that high, to be honest. Like you say, crystal balling a sentence is not a very productive exercise. But 20 years, I think, would reinforce the belief in the community that this crime was taken seriously and sentenced appropriately. So, Joyce, for people who will say, why only 20 years? The max is 40. Why wouldn't he get 40? There are people who possess some quantity of drugs, nonviolent offense, and this was a violent offense, but in a nonviolent offense, we'll get more than 20 years. How is it that you two can talk about 20 years as being sort of the baseline here? And in response to that, my, my response to that is, I'm not necessarily saying that that's right and that that's the just sentence. I think it, it probably should be longer. My answer is a predictive one. 
of what I think this judge will do based on some of the things that you've said about him. Um, how, how do you answer that question? So this raises this larger question, this problem that we have in our criminal justice system of over-sentencing people, sometimes for relatively minor crimes. In, in Alabama, we have a three-strikes law that sends people to prison for the rest of their lives for relatively minor crimes. It's, it's reprehensible. It's, it's not something that any system that calls itself fair should do. So I think those concerns are, are concerns that we will hear, and people will, no matter what the sentence here is, point to individual cases where people have gotten more time for what they perceive as, as lesser crimes. But I agree with you as a predictive matter, 20 years, I don't see this judge going any higher than that. I think that that's the highest sentence that we're likely to see, despite the statutory maximums. Yeah, and people might ask the question, if the defendant, Derek Chauvin here, had the right to have a jury decide something, like the Blakely factors, like the, the aggravating factors, why would you waive that and have a judge do it? If this jury had come back with, say, not guilty on murder two, maybe even not guilty on murder three, and had found Chauvin guilty on manslaughter, then he and his lawyers might have felt pretty good about letting the jury make decisions about the Blakely factors, knowing that there was at least some sympathy for him on the jury. But this jury had no trouble very quickly convicting him. He's got a better shot with the judge, because this, this jury made its mind up very clearly and very quickly. All right, so here, here's the big question for you, Joyce. Ready? Okay. As you announced last week on the show— as part of, I think you did, as part of your biography, you were the chief appellate lawyer in the U.S. Attorney's Office that you ended up leading later. And what a lot of people want to know is what's going to happen on appeal here? I should say at the outset, every defendant in a case like this has a right of appeal. Anything that the defense objected to, and even things that maybe they didn't object to, can form the basis of an appellate challenge. Some things we have talked about and that are known there was the issue of change of venue. There was the issue of delaying the trial because of the $27 million settlement on the eve of trial. There were some issues with a couple of jurors. There was the defense claim that the prosecution belittled the defense by talking about how there was storytelling and they're told stories. And there was an extensive objection about that after closing arguments. Any of this going to stick? I didn't see much that would stick. And, you know, the state of Minnesota um, has, I think, a, a secret weapon in its arsenal. They've got uh, our former colleague, Neil Katyal, the former acting solicitor general of the United States, working on the appeal. The defense will undoubtedly argue that the evidence wasn't sufficient to support the verdicts. They'll complain about evidence and some of the witnesses that the judge permitted to testify, maybe arguing that there were too many police witnesses and it was unduly prejudicial. And of course, another big area for appeal is always jury instructions. But looking back over this case, it was tried and, and managed very well. You know, the judge sort of tossed the defense a bone when those complaints about Representative Maxine Waters talking about right. that was an emerged. odd statement by the judge right he said well you have an issue for appeal and i think you and i said this last week that's not going to fly at all I i'm not sure they make the point even it's always hard to know until you read the briefs and i'm sure once the briefs are filed we'll read them and be in a better position to assess the defense's chances on appeal but it's worth underlining that there are three counts of conviction here certainly some kinds of error that could be argued on appeal would invalidate all of them 
but it seems very likely that the prosecution's got at least one charge that'll hold up. So, Joyce, you know, this is an interesting issue of, of how many points you make in order to win your cause. And I was talking about this with the behavioral psychologist, uh, Adam Grant, on the Stay Tuned podcast some time ago. Here, the defense has a lot of different arguments to make. Do you make seven arguments or do you pick two? What did you think was most effective when you dealt with appeals? So I really liked the Adam Grant interview, and I thought his point was a good one for lawyers to keep in mind. I've never been a toss a bunch of spaghetti at the wall kind of person. I like to make the best arguments and live or die with them because I think it keeps your credibility strong. What about you? I like to eat spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> I, like to, I like to eat spaghetti with a, with a nice the nice sauce. No, I, I feel, I feel the same the way. Uh, I don't throw it on the wall, at least not since adulthood. Look, the most effective appeal I ever saw was in a trial that, that I did when I was a line prosecutor. And there was an issue. I always say the case was tried perfectly until the judge got involved. <laughs> and it turned out before the judge announced, announced the verdict, he said there had been a question that had come from the jury in the back about some some legal issue, and rather than call back the parties and see how the parties wanted to proceed, the judge just sent back his instructions, and I think, and I think he circled the particular instruction that related to their question. So he didn't he didn't talk to us at all, and he just sent the the jury instructions back, and then immediately they came back with a verdict. And you know, as, as people know, that's a no no. You're supposed to talk to the parties. And there was an argument that the defense could make that that was sort of coercive in some way, and there's more details to it that you know, we don't have time to go into. And it's the only case I ever saw where the defense appealed on that issue alone. It was a one-issue appeal on which they prevailed, and the verdict was overturned. And I've always thought since then, you know what? If you got a really good issue, put all your chips in that basket. But there are some people who think, you know, that's dangerous. And you don't know what will fly. But but that case always stands out to me in my mind as a smart, strategic move. It's gutsy because the risk is that, you know, as a defense lawyer, you miss something that you should have argued. And perhaps down the road, you get slapped with ineffective assistance of counsel. But look, judges and especially appellate judges in the federal system, they are smart people. And there's nothing that diminishes your good arguments, like clustering them in the middle of a bunch of mediocre ones. Yeah, I totally agree. So here's another view that I have. Individual accountability is important. Prosecuting Derek Chauvin successfully is important, and prevailing on appeal is incredibly significant, as I expect the prosecution will. But we're seeing lots of incidents around the country. We're seeing lots of you know deaths occurring at the hands of police that have a racial component to them. What also matters is overall reform. What also matters is police departments getting better, disciplining better, training better, doing all sorts of things better. And the way that that can be accomplished sometimes is through something we're seeing for the first time in a few years. And that is the Department of Justice using its powers and authorities to open up what's called a pattern and practice investigation of particular police departments. And we've seen now Merrick Garland after the verdict came down, I think literally the day after the verdict came down, announcing the DOJ was going to be investigating the Minneapolis Police Department, which is very significant. But as we talk about that, we should 
not lose sight of the fact that he did it a second time yesterday, Monday, April 26th, announced a pattern and practice investigation with respect to the Louisville, Kentucky Police Department. That's two times in a week. I expect more of those will come up. Super significant, right? It's really significant. You know, these are big investigations. They take a lot of resources. During the Obama administration, I think that there were roughly 14 pattern and practice investigations that resulted in consent decrees. During the Trump administration, only one pattern and practice, a very small one in Massachusetts that I don't think resulted in a consent decree, just the investigation. Yeah. And, you know, people ask, well, what does that mean? It's really a top-down review. The Justice Department is going to look at everything that's going on. They're going to look at the documents in the police department. They're going to look at what the disciplinary actions were. They're going to see what disciplinary actions did not occur. And not only that, they're going to be taking a look at what the community thinks, right? They're not just going to be relying on police department information. So, for example, in the Louisville, Kentucky case, Louisville, by the way, as people know, uh, is significant in part because that's where Breonna Taylor was killed by police in a botched execution of a search warrant. You know, in that case, looking at the documentation from the Justice Department yesterday, they're going to be looking at everything, whether or not there were patterns of unreasonable use of force, whether there were unconstitutional stops, whether there were unconstitutional searches and seizures. I saw even that they're going to be surveying whether or not there was compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act. So is, is there anything that they will not be looking at? That one looks pretty comprehensive. And and to open that pattern and practice so broadly, I think indicates that they believe that there are significant problems with that police department. Sometimes they're more limited. A pattern and practice investigation will be open simply to see whether there's use of excessive force or sometimes even to look into whether police departments are, are violating First Amendment rights. That one feels broad. And Merrick Garland also made the point of saying that they wouldn't open a pattern and practice as a result of just one murder, no matter how profile and significant. So opening two in, in just the space of a week really is a, a sea change for DOJ. Yeah, and if you think about what the significance is, I go back and think about the precedent of Ferguson, Missouri, and people will remember that there was a, a huge outcry, understandably, uh, over the killing of Michael Brown back in 2014. And, a, you know, charges were never brought, but there was a pattern and practice investigation that was open. And by the way, it was overseen by our friend, Vanita Gupta, who was That's then right. the head of the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice. And boy, they did a lot of investigation. They did a lot of inquiry. They ended up in 2015 coming up with a 105 or so page report where they outlined a number of disturbing things beyond what happened in connection with the shooting, including racist emails, you know, concrete examples of bias, you know, arrests that were taking place for the purpose of bringing money to the city. And then that culminated in a consent decree. And we should explain that a consent decree is essentially <clears throat> an agreement between the Justice Department and the municipality or the police department that is authorized by a judge, signed by a judge, and can be enforced. And its terms can be enforced. And what are the terms? The terms include things like, you know, changed disciplinary rules, changed training exercises, and all overseen typically by an outside monitor. So there's a, you know, a, a referee or someone who oversees that department. In the Trump administration, there was guidance given that consent decrees were really not a thing that they wanted to pursue. And there are some people who, 
you know, think that consent decrees are bad. I happen to think if they're done properly, they're tailored correctly, they can do a lot of good. So I don't know if you had a consent decree in your district when you were I U.S. Did. attorney. Rikers Island. That's right. I had forgotten that. And did you think the process worked well there? How, how did you see that serving the community? You know, so I was asked the question on television about whether or not it made a difference and what the impact is of, of folks, city leaders in Louisville welcoming the investigation. And I said, yeah, it's definitely a good thing. It's, it's much better than if they're opposing it. But it, it's not necessarily going to mean that everything is smooth. When we started the investigation into Rikers Island and the overuse of, of force in that jail facility, you know, we had a mayor's office who said that they were very sympathetic to it and they wanted to fix things at Rikers Island. But when it came to actually putting things down on paper and having a formal consent decree that would be overseen by a judge and could be enforceable in court if there was a violation of any of the provisions of the consent decree, we got a lot of pushback because, you know, cities, communities don't want to be forced to do what, you know, they should do. They like to be left to their discretion. And in my view, and in my team's view, with respect to that, and there are other consent decrees as well, but with respect to that, the reason it served the community is you have things in black and white, metrics that Rikers was supposed to meet, for example, putting in, installing a certain number of cameras in places that were not covered by camera, where inmates on, an, on a regular basis were being beaten, uh, and use of force was being applied where it shouldn't have, but you have an option to go to court to say there's a violation and people can be held in contempt and there can be other sanctions as well. So for me, the, the consent decree is something that again, if it's, if it's tailored properly and there's a need for it, does a lot of good. I think that enforceability provision matters because even as you say, when community leaders have good intentions going into it, leaders can change over time. Sometimes the financial burden makes people reconsider in addition to the enforceability, something that's always struck me as being important about the consent decree process are, are the reports. You referenced the 105-page report in, in Ferguson, but you didn't have to get but five or six pages in to understand that the Ferguson Police Department was running a money-making. Essentially, it was a for-profit police department. It was a shakedown situation. And it was focusing on, on ex almost exclusively on people who were Black. I think Black people were something like 60% of the population, but in the 90s, maybe 90% of all arrests. Yeah, no, that's completely true. So we'll, we'll see what happens with that. It takes, as you say, Joyce, it takes a while, a lot of resources they really look at everything, and you'd expect in about 8 to 12 months, we'll hear something about the Minneapolis Police Department and the Louisville Police Department. Does that sound about right? That's maybe the traditional wisdom. It'll be interesting to see if they're able to surge resources and do this more quickly. But just the nature of the interviews and community input means it takes a while. There's an interesting provision, though, in the George Floyd Act, if it passes the Senate, that would bring more resources to the table. It would give the Civil Rights Division the ability to issue subpoenas to aid their investigation, which they don't have now. So it's possible that these could move more quickly. So we'll see what happens there. So there was some other big news yesterday, Monday, April 26th. The Supreme Court... We're familiar with the Supreme Court, right, Joyce? The Supreme Court of the United States of America has decided to take up a case involving the Second Amendment. And some folks might say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, they don't do it very often. Unlike some other hot-button issues that the court takes up, they've really not focused on Second Amendment issues and gun regulations 
on a regular basis. The, the last really major decision, as people may recall, was in 2008 in a case called Heller that involved the District of Columbia. The court held in a, an opinion, famous opinion, now notorious, depending on your perspective, written by the late Antonin Scalia, held for the first time, and this might be surprising to people, that it was for the first time in 2008, after two centuries of the Second Amendment being in existence, that there was an individual right to bear arms located in the language of the Second Amendment. And since then, there was another case that said, it's not only the federal government that can't abridge the right to bear arms by individuals, but also states, but they've largely stayed away from it. And now we have a case that arises in my home state, New York, that went up to the Second Circuit, that involves the issue of being able to carry a gun outside your home. So the law so far, there's been a consensus that you can't take away the right of self-defense within your home. But it's a more open question, and tell me if I have this right, Joyce, it's a more open question of whether or not you have a fundamental constitutional right to self-defense by carrying a weapon, and then we can get into the complicated question of whether it's, you know, you can openly carry it or conceal it. But for now, the real issue is whether or not you can carry a firearm around for self-defense. And, and the, the issue in New York is it's very, very hard to get a license to carry a weapon outside your home, notoriously. In fact, it's so notorious that we, we brought a criminal case against a number of police officers in the NYPD who were running a scam where they would be bribed to be able to give people licenses because it's done through the NYPD. And some people really want to carry firearms and it's really hard. So they were paying bribes to cops to be able to do so. And the Supreme Court has decided to take up this case, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, be correlate to address the question of whether or not the New York restriction that makes it very hard to carry a gun outside your home is constitutional or not. Did I get that right? I think you're exactly right. And it's a fascinating case. You know, we live in two states with very different cultures when it comes to Alabama guns. In, and New York in are Alabama, different. Yeah, they actually are. Um, I know that's a shocker. <laughs> uh, you do need a permit for concealed carry down here, but you pretty much just go to the sheriff's department. And as long as you don't have a prior conviction, maybe even if you do, they're going to issue it to you. So, in some states, I think like Alabama, Corlett is being viewed as the logical next extension of Heller. But it's an awfully tough sell, not legally, but in the context of what's going on in our society, where there are mass shootings with great regularity. It seems sort of crazy, just law aside for a second, this notion that we would make it possible for people without really even a second thought to carry guns in public. But that's basically the status quo in most of the country. As I understand it, there are only eight states, New York being one of them, that make it difficult, as you point out, it's easy in Alabama, that make it difficult to get a license to carry a gun outside your home. So in, in some ways, you know, for me, culturally, having been a New Yorker uh, and grew up in New Jersey, same situation, you know, we, I don't, you don't see people carrying firearms in the streets or in grocery stores, but in most of the country, you can get your gun. Right? I mean, when you walk around in Alabama, how many guns do you see? You know, where we live, not so many. But the further outside of Birmingham you get, it's really not unusual to see people um, just openly carrying firearms, sometimes long guns, uh, which is a little bit trippy, right? To go into Starbucks and the guy next to you is packing a pistol on his hip. Yeah. And if you look at the New York law and requirement that's being challenged here, I think it makes sense. 
But you can see, given the makeup of the court and what goes on in other parts of the country, why it might be at risk. The New York courts have established that an applicant, you know, to get a license to carry a gun outside your home must, quote, demonstrate a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community or of persons engaged in the same profession, end quote. So even if you're in a high crime area, Paul Clement will argue and has argued, and you think there's a reasonable need to be able to protect yourself, the New York law is unforgiving on that. And so they're going to say that there should be some easier ability to be able to carry a gun. And because you have this individual right to bear arms in the Constitution, that's not something that should be taken away easily. There shouldn't be a high threshold because it's a fundamental constitutional right. And they will take some comfort in what Heller says. It sounds pretty open and shut when you when you put it out like that. And they've picked a really good plaintiff here. One of the plaintiffs applied for a firearm claiming that there had been a rash of robberies in his neighborhood and he he needed to have a firearm for self-protection. So it sounds like very much core Second Amendment sort of stuff. And, and that's one of the issues here is, is how the court will view these sorts of laws that restrict gun ownership. Will it require that they be subjected to strict scrutiny, which is a test that the court sometimes uses for these core rights. Do you think that they'll use that sort of an analysis to decide the case, Preet? So the question of what standard they will use will hinge on whether or not they think that this regulation, the New York regulation that makes it hard to get a carry license, impinges on something that is core to the Second Amendment. Is it something that's central to the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms? Or is it in the nature of a legitimate and reasonable regulation because all rights can be limited to some degree, including the First Amendment right to free speech and assembly and press and everything else. And so I guess the question is, you know, what, what will the court think is a core Second Amendment right? That's right. And if they view this as being core to the Second Amendment, as being critical to the exercise by Americans of their Second Amendment rights, then they will use this higher standard and subject the New York law to strict scrutiny, which is a very skeptical level of review that seems to doom many statutes to an, an early death on constitutional grounds. And the consequence of that, of course, is not just that this law will be at risk, this reasonable restriction will be at risk, but the concern on the part of some people, depending on how the opinion is written and what phraseology is used, is will it then jeopardize, you know, a whole species of regulations that this new court in deciding this new issue will say is violative of a core Second Amendment right? And if they shift what it means to be a violation of a core Second Amendment right, then other regulations that are not along these lines, you know, but are related to them and fall in the same category may also be at risk as well. And that's the concern in the gun safety community. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's not limited to the facts in this case. There are a lot of restrictions on gun laws that are in place to keep communities safe that would potentially fall by the wayside, depending on how broad this decision is when it comes down. By the way, what the the, the petitioner, the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, have going for it, separate from whatever legal support they can find for their position, is they have the former Solicitor General, Paul Clement, who's a really excellent lawyer, who's basically making a, you know, a legal argument that might find very sympathetic ears on the Supreme Court. It will undoubtedly find sympathetic ears. It's tough to believe that with the last-minute addition of Justice Barrett to the court that a majority 
that will change the law here, that will extend Heller to public carrying of firearms doesn't exist. That majority seems to be uh, pretty central, frankly, to the shift on this court. You know, if there's any doubt about how Amy Coney Barrett will vote, and, you know, you and I talked about this probably in many forums when her nomination was pending, she dissented in the case, it got a lot of attention, in the Seventh Circuit, where she served before being on the Supreme Court, as recently as 2019, on a law that you and I have both enforced many, many times. It's it's the question of whether or not a, a felon is permitted to be in possession of a firearm. And it's a broad statute, and some people don't like the statute, but it's been upheld on constitutional grounds again, and I mean, literally, I think, scores of times around the country. And she wrote in her dissent, well, you know, that, that law is maybe too broad, and she understands that if you've been convicted of a violent offense, your right to bear arms should be taken away. But if you've been convicted of something like fraud, wire fraud or mail fraud, well, that doesn't really make you a dangerous person. And maybe you shouldn't be denied your right to have a firearm, which, you know, to some crowds will sound kind of reasonable. For those of us who know what the legal landscape has been with respect to the Second Amendment and that statute, 922G, it's kind of radical. And I know we're here to discuss the law, but purely from a a position of Do we want to live in safe communities that aren't scarred by repetitive gun violence? This case seems like it was poorly advised for the Supreme Court to take it up. They only took this case with the intent to change the law. It seems unlikely that they would be hearing this if they just wanted to say, hey, good good job, New York. Keep your restrictive laws in place. (laughs) Well, because they had an opportunity to take up this issue last summer when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still with us. And it's uncertain how the entire court would have ruled, and they did not do so. So I think you're right. I mean, I, I don't know if anybody is saying, and I talked to some people who were experts on this issue uh, yesterday, who think it's it's pretty, you never know, right? People have been wrong about other things, including the ACA. But on this point, it seems a fairly foregone conclusion that they're going to do away with the law. And I think it'll be a clear vote, Right. It will be interesting to see where the chief justice votes, but I would expect him to be in the majority on this one. So, uh, Joyce, let's end the show talking about a a mystery uh, and a public safety hazard that wasn't really covered much in the press. <laughs> it was. <it's, laughs> so, this incident occurred in uh, in Poland a couple of weeks ago, where a woman called the Krakow Animal Welfare Society because she had concerns about an animal trapped in a tree near her apartment. And Joyce, I imagine if you had an animal trapped in a tree, you might call the authorities. Am I right? Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm not going up on my own to get a cat out of the tree. <laughs> right. <laughs> Usually it's a cat. In this case, it didn't seem to be a cat. So, so this woman <clears throat> called the Animal Welfare Society and a member of that society who identifies himself as Inspector Adam documented the incident on a Facebook post. And so let's bring it to you. Here's an abridged version (laughs) of that post. This is what Adam says happens. The woman says, come and pick him up. And he says, desperation sounds in the voice of a woman calling. But who, ma'am? The inspector asks. This creature, he's been sitting in a tree across the block for two days. People don't open windows because they're afraid it's going to enter their house. But what is it, ma'am? Maybe some sick prey bird? No, no, it's not a bird. And what does it look like? 
It's brown. It's sitting in a tree. And it looks similar to to an iguana. He's been sitting here for two days and everyone is scared. And she says, so when are you coming for him? And so the inspector says, fearing the creature was a discarded pet, we rushed over. When we arrived, we called the woman and asked her to help us locate the tree the animal was sitting in. (laughs) It's halfway down the block in a tree that blooms in May, is what she tells him when he gets there. The inspector noted that wasn't helpful. Almost everything blooms in May. So regardless, they began their search, they look around, and suddenly, suddenly, there he was. We got him. The creature was sitting on a lilac branch. The creature sat and didn't move, his brown skin shining in the sun, exactly as the woman described. <laughs> he, he says that then they looked closer. And they realized that the poor guy had no legs and no head. (laughs) From one glance, they realized they could not help this creature. The reason Joyce is laughing so much is she's reading this in real time. She she didn't read this in advance. And so she's getting the punchline just as you are. They couldn't help this creature. It's hard to help something that was previously baked and not in the sunlight. It was not an iguana. It was, in fact, a croissant. It was a what? It was a croissant. (laughs) It was was a croissant? Somebody apparently had a a baking misadventure. Maybe they didn't like their their product and they tossed it out the window. I mean... Now, do you say croissant or do you say croissant? Croissant. I live in Alabama, so I say everything wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know how to say it either. And so how the croissant came to be in the lilac tree will forever remain a mystery. (laughs) <laughs> have you ever, have you ever called have you ever called have you ever called the cops or the fire department on a croissant? No, not on a croissant, that's for sure. Maybe a bagel. <laughs> Even not a bagel. You know, we did once have a cat that was stuck in a tree overnight and and one of our neighbors came out with the fish that she had for dinner and it it was really high up and so one of our neighbors went up with fish and and lured the cat down, but it was not a croissant. <laughs> okay. I'm glad we've established that. A lot of news continuing to happen. We'll be back next week. Joyce, I hope you'll come back for episode three. I think I'm good for one more, Preet, but you're going to have to really uh, make my, it worth my, my while game. Anyway, <laughs> send us your questions to letters at cafe.com. We'll do our best to answer them. That's it for this week's Cafe Insider podcast. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Jennifer Korn, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh. Our music is by Andrew Dost. Thank you for being a part of the Cafe Insider community.